Welcome to I Caught It on Audio. This is 64 Tacos Book Club Episode 6, Doom Part 1. Hello and welcome to I Caught It on Audio. Today we're going to do our book club podcast series. We're going to be talking about the book Dune by Frank Herbert. We're going to split this book into six different sections and release one section each week for the next five weeks. So let's get right into it. Dan, why don't you tell us uh, tell us how this book starts and we'll get talking about it. Yeah. Uh, so this is Frank Herbert's Dune. Um, it was published in 1965. It's one of the most famous, if not the most famous, uh, sci-fi books out there. It's kind of considered a, the uh, Lord of the Rings of sci-fi in many ways, partly because of its uh, meticulous world building uh, and scope, but also because it was very, very influential on all the sci-fi that came after. Personally, uh, I I have read this book before. I read it when I was probably 12, once or twice, I can't really remember, when I was younger. And then I reread it recently, just before the uh, first Dune movie came out, which we have a water cooler chat on, if you feel like checking that out. Uh, in anticipation of that, so I could refresh myself on the story, did you guys... Uh, Zach, I, I believe you've read it, but uh, yes. I'd be curious what you guys all think, uh, what what you know about the book uh, and uh, and stuff like that. Um, I have not read it before, as you know, it's a book. <laughs> That's not typically a thing that I do. I definitely saw the recent movie, uh, the one that with Timothy Chalamet, and I feel like I saw the old um, what's his name, the director. David Lynch. David Lynch movie, but I, I'm not certain. I feel like I've seen it on TV or something like that, but never deliberately sat down to see it. Certainly not recently. Yeah, Matt, how about you? What's your experience with the book? Um, I have never read it. I started the audio book about two years ago and didn't get very far. As for the movies, I've seen the new one and the David Lynch one I've seen a couple of times. There was also the uh, sci-fi miniseries um, that was it was on the sci-fi channel uh, in the let's see early 2000s, I believe. Um, and most people believe that that is the closest representation or the closest uh, adaptation for the story. But it's not great because it's obviously marred by the um, the low budget of what a sci-fi yeah. channel uh, miniseries movie can can do but uh but yeah i i my my first experience with with dune was was with um the david lynch movie and it kind of creeped me out because i was just a wee lad when i watched it (laughs) and david lynch is is a uh, freak of nature when it comes to movie (laughs) movie creations but but what i what i thought was really interesting about it was like there was some uh, some really grandiose story behind the scenes and this this was that was david lynch's interpretation of it and from that, eventually I got around to reading the book and this would have been probably in, I think the late nineties. Um, so it was quite a while ago. And of course, you know, I've seen the the new movies and the, the miniseries and all that stuff. And I'm thankful that we're doing this, doing this right now, because, uh, uh it's, it's a great refresher to go, go back through it and relive this, this, uh, wonderful story that Frank Herbert created. Yes, this, we should mention that we are doing this kind of in the run up to the release of the second Dune movie uh, in March here, and then we will we will watch the movie and uh, talk about you know the differences and what we liked and, and all that stuff. I have seen Lynch's Dune. I did not watch the sci-fi uh, miniseries, but of course, we, as I mentioned, we, we've all seen the uh, the Denis Villeneuve um, part one, and uh, we're all going to watch part two. 
So let's get into the plot. So this uh, this is sort of structured without chapters, which is Dave's favorite, I think. I, if you if we want to address this first off, I I don't understand why you wouldn't put chapters. There's clear clear breaks in the writing, and I just don't get it. Why wouldn't you? Put- well, it is it is a bit odd, but it was also the '60s. So. Yeah. Uh, I've seen it a bunch of times, well, but I don't know what the, the reasoning books actually from the is. The 1500s you know? have chapters. I mean, it's not like it was a new thing. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know. I know. I know some people don't use chapters, but I've never heard someone explain exactly why that would be, other than to make it difficult to uh, to do book clubs. Yeah, <laughs> it's <laughs> author's <laughs> prerogative. <laughs> Frank Herbert. Ruined yeah. our lives <laughs> six, <laughs> six years ago. Frank so, Herbert, what a dick! <laughs> so we should explain also that we're that we're breaking this down into six parts, right? That um, that the book itself is broke. The 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 logical structure of the book is book one, book two, and book three, and that's pretty much it. And so what we decided to do was chop those each one of those books in half to make it a little bit more manageable chunks. So this is the first first part, which is Half, the first half of book one. Yep. And then that's the sort of the structure that we're, we're going to use. So we just kind of basically chopped them up uh, in a reasonably sensible way. And uh, we'll see how that all pans out. So uh, each of these non-chapters is sort of framed by a quotation from an imaginary book. Three, Actually, I think three different ones. The Manual of the Maudib, the uh, Child's Guide to the Maudib or something. And then there's another one, boy, the history of the of, of Arrakis or something like that. They're all by the Princess Irulan, who we, we don't know who that is. But, so you, um, your your interpretation with there was that there were there were non non existent actual books because my um, when I read it I always thought that it, they were referencing something else that existed somewhere else and we were just getting little little blurbs of it like it was a future thing that she wrote like a memoir and or something like that that about her time with with Muad'Dib and with um, the Atreides and things like that. Yes, in the context of, of Frank Herbert's world, they exist, but mm. I don't believe he ever wrote these books. Um, right. So in that sense, they're they're okay. imaginary. So yeah, Zach, he agrees with you. Yes, okay. agreed. <laughs> All right, good. Because yes, I, yeah, they, I didn't want to have to get my to be, angry pants on. <laughs> <laughs> they, they appear to be retrospective um, histories or or, or 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 tales of whoever the Maudib is. I think by context, we can guess is probably Paul Atreides, who is our main character, but they're all written by the same person, uh, the Princess Irulan. Uh, and guys who, uh, you guys listen to the, Dave and Matt, you guys listen to the audiobooks. Yes. If, mm-hmm. if I ever pronounce something different, and I'm sure it will happen, than the way they pronounced it, I'd be curious to hear what what the official, or at least on the recording, the official pronunciation of some of these things are, because you don't really get that unless there's a uh, a guide to pronunciation, which I don't believe this book has. Well, I'm I'm a little concerned about that because they're they didn't say any apostrophes, and it looks like there are several of them in these uh, hmm. new vocabulary. So, well, we we all know about your very reasonable hatred of apostrophes, so <laughs> we'll, we'll keep that in mind. Um. But yeah, well, if if I remember how a word is pronounced and you pronounce it differently, I'll, I'll yeah, be happy yeah. to let you know you're wrong. Yeah, same, Matt. Tell me I'm wrong when I'm wrong. Um, okay. Not that that's a thing that you're that afraid of anyway, I, I think. But. <laughs> am, am I allowed to tell you that you're wrong when you're wrong too? Well, if you if you read it, if you interpret it a different way, if you if you hear it, it, it pronounced different in your head, I'd be curious what that is. I, as I've well. only ever heard Muad'Dib 
pronounced as Muad'Dib, so it was really confusing to me when you said Muad'Dib. <laughs> yeah, Muad'Dib um, sounds better. Um, Muad'Dib, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't know that I necessarily always pronounce it. It's interesting when you're saying the words out loud, which you've never said out loud before. Muad'Dib does sound better. Yeah, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of how they said it in the movie, but probably like that. We open with uh, an old woman uh, who is visiting Paul and his mother, the lady Jessica. Uh, her name is the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohayam. She's a sort of a mysterious figure. We sort of begin to discover about the um, Benny Gesserit, or I don't know how you guys think Je- that's pronounced. Jesuit. Benny Gesserit. Benny Gesserit, who is so, appears to be a sort of a, um, they're sort of like um, a quasi-religious faction of, I believe, all women who are trying to guide history and politics in the world you guys have any uh, other ideas about what that's all about they're just like a group of witches yeah they're kind of like fortune tellers uh-huh. yeah they seem to have some powers they've got some magic of some kind yeah yeah exactly um, or intuition. Whether, whether, it's, whether it's an innate ability or something like that yeah or maybe learn skills um yeah. that are you know preternatural. Well, they, they have to train with them they make that clear Yes, there's training involved that gets mentioned. We meet our three three main figures of this section, uh, Paul, the Lady Jessica, and the Reverend Mother. Paul pretends to, to be asleep, but uh, the Reverend Mother figures it out. And then the next day, he meets her with her formally, and she uh, asks him to put her, her his hand in her in this box that she has, just like a small box that appears to be completely black on the inside, kind of to eats, it eats the light, I think, uh, is mentioned. Uh, he does so, and then she puts a little needle at his neck, which is called the Gom Jabber, unless you guys want to pronounce it differently. Gom Jabbar. Jabbar. Gom Jabbar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then- <laughs> <laughs> I'm loving this, by the way. I'm loving this. It's, it's very strange saying the words out loud, for, kind of kind of for the first time. Um, yeah. It, it's interesting because you, you, know, you read a ton, so you've got all mm-hmm. these ways that you want to want to pronounce it based on all, all of your experience reading. And I've only ever listened to this. And then I'm kind of fingering through it as we're going through this. And like, oh, I can see how he might think that that's, but, but that's definitely Jabbar. Yeah. <laughs> well, you guys have never seen the words, right. so you don't know how they're spelled. And then um, probably Zach and I have never, uh, have never heard them spoken out loud unless Zach, through his uh, dutiful watching of movies, has heard them many times. Yeah, and that's that's really where it comes from, and uh, you know, obviously that that is based on the interpretation of whoever you know the the movie makers decided to pronounce things. But I, I think it does make sense in a lot of the ways that they mm-hmm. that they did did settle on, and and certainly having lif- listened to some of the the audio book, it sounds like that's the way. And I don't know if that if that's the way that they were sort of told by Frank Herbert's estate or whatever, or maybe his son. Or if they just settled on it, or if maybe they just sort of decided that the way the movies were pronouncing them, all these words were the correct ways and just, just rolled with it. I don't really know, but, but yeah, my, yep. mine is mainly colored by the, um, the, what I've heard in the, in the movies and, uh, and then some subtlety things that I've from my reading, from my, th- what it think it should be uh, mm-hmm. in the reading. 
Yeah, so we'll, we'll keep uh, we'll keep enjoying those uh, those moments. Uh, <laughs> uh, so there's also during the, the test is essentially he puts his hand in the box, great pain and uh, occurs, and he has to leave his hand in the box. And uh, if he pulls his hand out, then she kills him uh, with the poison in the gum jabber. He holds his hand in long enough. In fact, I think she says longer than anyone has before. And so the, he passes Which the test. Which is funny because it, is it just an arbitrary time that she makes up? Because like, yeah. <laughs> you would think if the, if this if there's some real purpose to this, then you have a, a set time and you just get to that and you're done, right? You know. But she's, right. she makes a point of saying, wow, you, you went longer than anybody else. Well, why did you make him suffer longer than anybody well, else? I think <laughs> she was testing him. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, and well, I yeah, think yeah. She's there, they, they have this idea that he's the Quetzat Sadrach, the, um, the d- divine one, the, uh, the Messiah. And they don't know for sure. And so you're, you're absolutely right, Matt. They're, they're, she was trying to see what he could actually endure, you know, if he is the one. <laughs> yeah, also, see if he's worthy. Also, Jessica wasn't supposed to give the Duke a son, right? Yeah, we're going to discover that yeah, right. shortly. Okay. But I think she has additional doubts about Paul because of that uh, exactly. schedule that they, they're they breeding. They have this strange breeding plan where they're trying to bring about the uh, Kwisatz Haderach. And Jessica went off script. And so the, they think he might be, he could be, but it might be too early. So I think that may be why she pushed it longer because she was almost hoping he would fail. Mm-hmm. Given him every chance to fail at the very least. Uh, at one point, at points during these conversations, because a lot of there's a lot of conversation in this first section for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it serves the function of explaining the world, the politics, all the details, all the background. Was that a thing that that you guys find find um like frustrating or slow or not interesting? The lack of like decisive action, or do you find it just interesting to learn about the world? The the only thing that I found frustrating about it was the quality of the dialogue. It's it's a bit it's definitely sci-fi dialogue. Yeah, it's like, a bit stiff. Without um, a doubt. I, I feel like it's the weak point now. You know, it's great world building, there's no doubt about it. But I want less of the uh of the characters talking and more of the narrator describing, I think. Because I think he does a better job when the narrators are describing. And then uh than the dialogue. The dialogue suffers a lot. I think some of the stiffness too is also from the the um, class classes of of who's talking and and how they're talking because there's there's a part later on where um, it's just a bunch of. Uh, like soldier types with Gurney Halleck and yeah. um, there there's a and that dialogue is really like down to earth and 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 much more you know normalized but that's because they're a different class of of people they're the grunts if you will right and so i think you know i think frank herbert was actually looking at at the you know the way people were talking and he was trying to have this this sort of almost air of nobility with with these um uh, with the the different houses, you know, with the the house of trades, and and they're they're supposed to be this ruling, you know, sort of a monarchy type of uh, class, and that and I, I think that's what comes out in the dialogue. Um, is that is that kind of what you're talking about, or you're talking about? It's just it's just really stiff in the way that they're 
delivering. It, I did, you know, I did get that. You definitely know when you're when you're dealing with uh, nobility and dealing with the uh, the everyday class and all that stuff, and and then the soldiers and all that. And you especially know when you're not when uh, uh, what is it? The Harkonnen later on comes. Yeah, you definitely know that he's different. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of sci-fi dialogue. Yeah. It's my it's my flaw in Star Wars movies. It's especially the early ones. It's it's the flaw in this. Um, and that said, I'm enjoying it. It doesn't. It it's like here's what it's like. It's like a meatloaf song. The lyrics are cheesy and the music's over the top, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy it. You know, that's part of the style. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I always chalk it up to that's the style of speaking in this planet, in this universe at this time. And it is a bit stiff and formal and sort of, you know, part of that is maybe because it was written 60 years ago by someone who's trying to write formally. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that dialogue is the strongest feature of Frank Herbert's writing. No, I would and, say it definitely here's, isn't. Here's but. maybe a better comparison. This dialogue could very well translate into a 90s video game. Mm. Um, and I could love the shit out of that video game. But you might also get lines like, it's because of the fucking pizza that the people underneath are suffering. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> What about but, you, Matt? Do you have any uh, reservations about uh, the dialogue so far? No, <laughs> it hasn't bothered me one bit. <laughs> yeah, you did, didn't even notice it. Do, do you like the? Do you mind the world building? I yeah. love the world building. Like yeah. I love this idea of the world where they've kind of turned away from a lot of um, AI type technology. And well, that's that's great. That's, that's what I was going to bring up next. It appears that there are no complex machines. Mm -hmm. um, it appears that they're illegal um, and perhaps that they once were and that caused problems. Um, <clears throat> what do you think about a sci-fi world where advanced computers are not allowed? I think it's really interesting because they've like genetically engineered people to fulfill those roles. Right. The Mentats mm -hmm. or Mentat. How, well, how, how, how will we pronounce this? Tat. Mentat. Mentat. Okay. Um, there's yeah. the Mentats, but then there's also the the Spacer Guild. I can't remember what they're the called. The Space Guild. Uh, yes, uh, that's that's a whole thing we haven't really dove all the way into yet, for sure. But yeah, but we, we know about it from the movies, um, for sure. Well, they talk about them a little bit later in the book somewhat. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, they're I mean, so we're like engineering people to fulfill these roles that we you know, in modern days, use technology to fulfill. So I think that's really cool. Yeah. So does this, uh, do you guys think um, that this is our future? You know, thousands and thousands of years into the future? I don't think we're going to last that long. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you think, I guess what I mean is, do you think it's intended to be our future? Oh, uh, uh, it could be a possible future. Yeah, yeah, no, I, uh, I, I think, I think that's probably what Frank Herbert was going for. He was, he was like, well, you know, they didn't have a, a ton of technology 
um, computers and things like that in 1965. It was just very, very in its infancy. And, you know, computers were the size of rooms at that time. Yeah, but the technology Um, was also growing at that time, too. Right. So it was it was. And so I think he was he was seeing what, you know, what was potentially coming. And 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 then he was even going further in his imagination to a, a way, way far point in the in the future. Um, yeah. And, I, and yeah, go ahead. I, I feel like um, in the 60s, if you conceived having the world's knowledge at your fingertips in some in a device that fits in your pocket, you would have been out of your mind or thought of as out of your mind. So the notion like they're they're very specific about you not you not being able to make something that represents or uh, replicates the human mind. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Um, so they instead have taken the human mind and uh, accommodated it to their needs. And I do think there's evidence that he specifically wanted to have this be our human future because there's a lot of emphasis on whether people are human or not human. Mm-hmm. And then there's also a, uh, a lot of talk about the Orange Catholic Bible, which yes. um, you don't have to have the Catholic faith be necessarily be from our reality. But I feel like that was, that's one indication that he did want to keep the, you know, have it be, uh, this is our, a, a potential future for us. Yeah. That's um, how I read it too. And then there's a lot of like the, uh, there's a lot of names like Idaho and stuff like that, mm-hmm. that um, are very, very much earth related, you know? Yeah. Like, so I, I definitely, to answer your question, yeah, I, I definitely think he presents this as a future for humanity. Right. Yeah. All right. Cool. So uh, the other, only other thing that I thought was interesting in here is that there's a point when the uh, Reverend Mother is speaking where she says something that she believes is true, but Paul senses that it is not true um, on a more basic level. Um, China, you know, that's an, a hint at what his powers might be, and perhaps that he is the Kwisatz Haderach that was foretold. Um, all right, so the next section, um, we switch to the Harkonnens. Oh, Harkonnens? Yes, Harkonnens. Harkonnens. Harkonnens? Harkonnens? Yeah, we meet the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, his nephew Fade Rotha, and Peter de Vries. Who is his mentat? Um, don't trust Peter that guy. Has uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't trust him based on his name alone. Yeah, name alone is enough for me. <laughs> Peter has completely blue eyes, not just the irises, but um, but the entirety of his eyes. Um, and then basically they they lay out what their plan is um, to betray the. Um, Atreides, who Paul is the son of the, the the Duke Atreides, they explain how there's a plan to give them Dune, which is Arrakis, the uh, the source of 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 all the wealth, basically of all the great houses. The Harkonnens have been in control of that for many 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 years, but now they're giving it by the Emperor's order to the um, the House Atreides. And they are going to um, basically do that in order to betr- to put them in a position where the Harkonnens can defeat them, presumably reclaim the the planet and all its wealth. Um, we learn that they have an, a secret agent 
among the um the the house atreides uh named yue and that there will be an attempted assassination which is meant to to fail but i believe the intent is to sow discord and have them blame each other and who should have stopped it and all that and then they intend to invade arrakis when the time is right um what do you guys think of the uh our and our antagonists which is pretty clear that they are they they seem like cookie cutter villains yeah they're, they're very evil even yeah. in the way that they speak to each other they're like shitty to each other the whole time yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they they give us the thoughts of each person as they go along or at least the baron and and his nephew and they don't like each other they're all you know sort of infighting as they go along here and i love how they describe the baron as this you know overweight dude <laughs> that, who has these he's got so like fat rolls and he's got like little suspenser things um, mm-hmm. to hold him up and allow him to be able to walk around. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it's, it's just great, great description and really, you know, solidifies the kind of awfulness of, of these characters. And, uh, what do you think about the, the use of dramatic irony here where we know the bad guys plan before it happens? Um, is that, is that something that you think is, is good to know, or would you rather discover it as it happens? Uh, Dave, why don't you, uh, why don't you tell me what you think on that? Well, I'll be honest. So I'm, I'm listening to it and I should have re-listened to this chapter because I, I didn't know what was coming when, when it came. So I'm probably oh. the wrong person, to, <laughs> the wrong person to ask on that one. Uh, well, I, I, I have read it several times and I read it very carefully this time. So, but no, I, I think all the information is in there. Yeah. No, as you guys are talking about it, it's obvious. And when I got, when we got to the, the, the point of, uh, when it happens, you know, it's obvious, but uh, I did not see it coming like I should have. So that's That's my experience. The first time I read it too, when I was younger, I, I just blew past it because I was expecting a really conventional novel. And I think this is slightly unconventional and it's sort of the reader knows, but the, but like the good guys don't know. And so you see them sort of figuring it out. And and the tension is, I I know what's going to happen. Are they going to figure it out in time? Mm Mm-hmm. There's also this interesting duality of of having the Baron and his nephew fade um, as sort of like this bit of a mirror to uh, Duke Leto and um, and Paul. You know, there the, you've got this leader, you know, uh, head of the house household, and then you've got the youngling that uh, that needs to kind of learn and 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 take up the mantle. And so they're in, including them, even though they're very young, they're including them with the. Um, the different uh, plans and meetings and things like that. I, I loved the line where Baron says, listen up, fade, observe the plans within plans within plans. <laughs> it's, it's such a great line of like, and not only talking about the complexity of what they're trying to, to achieve, um, but also like, you know, get in here because this is, this is going to get detailed and you'd really need to be paying attention to this. Yeah. He's grooming him to be the successor. Um, pretty right. clearly. Yeah. This is the day after, I believe, the uh, the test with the Reverend Mother and Paul. And basically, it's just Paul, Jessica, and the Reverend Mother talking. Um, we find out that initially, before Paul is allowed in the room, that Jessica, as we mentioned, was not supposed to have a son, but rather a daughter. And it's implied, I believe it's actually stated that they were they were going to try to join the two houses 
the Harkonnens and and House Atreides. And I, I speculate that Fade Rautha, since he's of the right age and apparently is going to be um, the next uh, Baron, would be the person that uh, if Paul was was his daughter was was a daughter was a woman was a girl that that, that would marry uh, Fade Rautha, but. Because the Duke really wanted a son. Apparently, the Bene Gesserit have the control of uh, <laughs> of uh, what gender um, child they have, and she chose what the Duke wanted. And so Paul is loud in the room. They talk about his dreams. He apparently has some dreams that he remembers, but dismisses because they're not important. And some dreams that he knows are important. He mentions one recent dream that he's been having, where he meets a girl with completely blue eyes. And she, at one point, um, she asks about the waters of his homeland. And he's not sure if the word Usul uh, is in reference to his homeland or to him. The home planet of of, the, of his house is, is, is it Caliban? I didn't actually Caladan. write that down. Caladan, that's what it is. And uh, so he's a little confused about that, but he thinks it might be it might be a name for him. At this point, they tell him that they think it's possible that he's the Kwisatz Haderach and also that they see no hope for for his father, that his father is not going to survive, which he does not like very much, as you could probably imagine. Uh, any any thoughts on this section? In in relation to the last part where it's where the Harkonnens are laying out their entire you know, plans, this kind of like lays out the future of the book without, without the reader actually knowing about it. Um, so it's more foreshadowing and more sort of future telling. Uh, and it's a really interesting, uh, writing style, you know, method, because I mean, obviously at this point you're reading through it, you've never encountered the story or the book or anything like that. You don't know that these things are going to happen. So it's all just kind of out there, but it's, it is kind of giving you kind of spoiling the story in a way um, by by putting a lot of the, uh, the the things out there early on. And I think that's interesting that Frank Herbert did that. But of course, we as the reader are hoping that these things won't come to pass and, and we right. think, hey, maybe they won't. Um, and then yeah. in retrospect, you look back and say, yeah, it's, it, it was all right there. This is the thing that I think they spent less time on in the movies, giving away the sort of, you know, the Harkonnens explaining everything. And like, I think they do some of it. But it's it's less obvious if my memory yeah. serves. Well, they they I think they wanted more surprises or more things to yes. unravel as they went on when they're showing it in I the in the film. That works better in a movie, I, I would say. Yeah, I, I just want to go back to what you were saying, Dan. And yeah, I, even though I know what's going to happen because I saw the movie, you still hope that like, oh, they're going to overcome this. Like the dad's going to be okay and. They're all going to come out of this. They'll they'll figure out the attack before it happens, especially since so many people know about it. Like, well, that's the interesting thing. And the, the Zach mentioned the line plans within plans within plans. The Harkonnens know they have this. They have a big plan, and we know we know pretty much all of it. And the Atreides, and thanks in many in in large part to their mentat, knows most of what the Harkonnens plan. But the question is, who's hiding the important thing? And is there one small detail that somebody missed that's going to make the difference? Uh, the next section, uh, Paul speaks to, well, the mentat I just mentioned, uh, Thufir Hawat. How, how, how is that pronounced in the... Uh, in the Thufir. Uh, Thufir? 
Thufer. Like Thumper? Thuffer? Right. Doesn't the audiobook say it as Thufer? Thufer? Thufer. How, how what? I don't uh, remember. I don't remember. <laughs> okay. So it's either Thuffer or Thufer. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was Thufer. Okay, we'll go with Thufer. <laughs> Thufer <laughs> Hawat uh, is the mentat for House Atreides. And so he and Paul speak for a bit, not really of anything particularly important other than to sort of to, to meet the mentat, I think. More more world building and, and explaining who knows what and, and all that kind of thing. And then uh, Gurney Halleck is a new character um, who arrives. He is not the normal trainer for uh, for Paul. That would be Duncan Idaho, which we've mentioned, but uh, he is off-planet on Arrakis already in anticipation. So Gurney is steps in for him because he's also a warrior. He uh, So they, they have, there's a training sequence, a little bit of action, and we learn about the shields. Now, you guys know about the shields from the movie and all the, all the versions you know that, that we've seen. Um, I think this is an interesting, um, an interesting idea. The the sort of if you just move slow enough, you can pass the shields. It's almost like those, um, like those substances that you know. Water's a bit this way. The harder you hit it, the more resistance it gives you. Is that a calloid? Uh, could be. Uh, I don't know. Um, but you know, like the thing where you can punch it and you can't go through it, but if you just slide your hand in, you're fine. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the uh, the shield. All right. Uh, Dave's got a dirty mind, clearly. <laughs> so is this is this relationship advice, Dave? Is that is that what you're saying? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, I'll say this. <laughs> Mood is for cattle and lovely. All right. <laughs> yep. Uh, so He's, when Paul Paul says I'm not in the mood, and, yeah. and then oh, yeah. uh, Gurney says mood is for mood. cattle and, and love play. Mood is for cattle and love play. <laughs> well, I'm not sure what cattle has to do with it, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> um. So sounds like a moo point to me. Okay. Um, so, so just, uh, just like, my favorite line from this section of dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So, um, so yeah, the shields, um, you, it's, it's, it, it would demand a very different style of fighting, um, which I think is a, is an interesting invention, but of course we're familiar with those. So we'll, we'll move on. Basically um, we, we just kind of meet these characters. I don't think there's a whole lot of, vastly important stuff that happens here other than perhaps um learning about the shields um next up as paul introduces us to everyone um <laughs> we meet dr wellington ua he of course is the one the harkonnens have uh managed to uh turn to their side but he mostly he mostly just explains a few things about um arrakis um he he discusses at Paul's urging the Fremen um, and how they have completely blue eyes. And now we have the the girl from Paul's dream and the Mentat of the Harkonnens who also have completely blue eyes alongside of that. This gives us something to think about. So he talks about the planet a little bit, um, how there are, there are some people who live in the cities and some people who live in the desert. The Fremen live in the desert. He gives Paul a miniature orange Catholic Bible. As he's talking about this, and Paul reads Yue's uh, wife's favorite passage, 
And then Iwe is very upset by this. We sort of discovered that that is the way that they have turned Yue. They have put his wife in danger. Um, and although he is wants to be loyal to the, the House of Treaties, he's, of course, is more loyal to the Harkonnens. They've got leverage over him Mo- to use him as their wife. assassin. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, and this, do we learn here that um, his wife is Benny Gesserit? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which is another interesting one. All right. Anything on this? I thought the uh, description of the orange Catholic Bible thing was pretty interesting because it, it to, you know, it sounds like a sort of digital book, maybe kind of like a, like a, a nook or, you know, the early versions of the, the Kindle, but it also sounds very delicate. Like don't touch it at this part cause you'll mess it up or whatever. It's like, you're giving this to a kid. Well, it was, <laughs> um, it was but, written. I mean, it's, it's like written words on like, I don't remember what they said, but parchment actual. Yeah. Parchment. It was like, it was but like then it's a, got a magnifying, a yeah, mm-hmm. parchment filament. Yeah. It's got a magnifying glass, and it uh, can open to bookmarked areas exactly. And yeah, it was it was a neat little device. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's um, it, it's a good way to show that there is a lot of technology in this world. It's just it's just AI technology, as we would call it, is the thing that that is banned. But they can still have things that would. Uh, be very interesting uh, to us, especially in the 60s. We move on to the section where Paul speaks to his father. And we we learn that his father is very well aware of the trap, which we could guess based on the fact that everybody else seems to know it too. But um, the decision is, you know, basically flee your position as a duke or take the take the trap knowing it's a trap and then try to disarm the trap and he knows a lot of of what he's supposed uh, of what the harkonnens plan but not everything and then at the end of the chapter he mentions to to paul that he's been having since he was a child uh he's being prepped to be a mentat and that he he has the skill for it paul's like oh what are you talking about oh wait i get it that's right we're not you wouldn't know when you're young okay gotcha (laughs) so we learn more about paul basically paul is the sort of can has basically all the skills that you can have and some skills that people don't are a little confused about. So he has the Mentat training. He has from his mother, the Benny Gesserit training, and he also has this ability to dream and sense truth. Um, so he's got, uh, he's got a lot of things that are sort of indicating that this is a uh, chosen one, you know, uh, any, uh, any thoughts, uh, Matt, what, what are your thoughts on, on the Duke? I like the Duke. He's, He's a stand-up, honorable guy. And he's not really all that special. <laughs> he has yeah. a bit of sense of uh, he may not. He doesn't have to be that complex because he won't be here that long. Not going to invest a lot of pages into <laughs> developing old Duke. Yeah, <clears throat> it is a it is a coming of age story after all. Yeah, it's clearly about Paul more than it is about uh, yeah. about his father. Uh, and the next, uh, we have now left Caledon, um, and we have arrived on Arrakis, and we see this through the eyes of Jessica, which we should mention. The Lady Jessica is the consort of the Duke. They they never married. Um, that was done for political reasons. Yep. But um, she she sort of makes clear that she would like to be married, but she does not want to force a marriage, which she could do with her, her training if she wanted to, but it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be real. And there are advantages to not being married, politically speaking, as that makes the Duke 
eligible as a possible match for uh for somebody else however in every other way they seem to operate as a man and wife paul is the uh is the heir so that doesn't really affect anything other than the uh, the idea of, of marriage i think so jessica is basically in the new residence unpacking and directing where things go we learn a little bit about the um the father of uh of duke uh leto is it leto or leto how do you guys leto leto Le- is it Leto? Leto? Le- okay. It's the third one? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Go with the third one. Leto. <laughs> as long as it's not Jared Leto. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so we, we basically learned that um, Jessica, I think, mentions that uh, at one point that there's the kind and loving man and then there's the harsh, violent man. Those, those both exist within the Duke, but his father was just the harsh, violent one. And uh, he learned that from 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 his from his dad. Yeah, the previous Duke was killed apparently, like in some sort of bullfighting uh, exhibition or something. I don't know. I wasn't one hundred percent clear on that. If anybody has any more detail, I, I took it more as a boar. Oh, was it a was it a boar? I, I thought they said the tusks were by the nose. Oh, I may I entirely uh, misunderstood that. Let me just flip to this chapter real quick. And- yeah, it's in chapter uh, <laughs> several. several. It's in chapter, chapter one. <laughs> chapter something. It's in book one, all right, guys? Yeah. <laughs> uh, where is it? All right, so we verify that it is, in fact, a bull and not a boar. Anyhow, it killed him, and the blood is still on the horns. M- Mapes was not happy about that. Yes, she was going to clean it up. Uh, speaking of Mapes, the Shadout, she is the housekeeper. She is a Fremen. She has the fully, completely blue eyes. And she is, you know, perhaps more uh, bold and willful than the average housekeeper that they are used to. But that is because she is Fremen and they are not a very mild people. We learn that she specifically requested that she wanted to serve the Lady Jessica because she is Benny Jesserit, and this is a thing that was mentioned before briefly, but we'll talk about it now. The Benny Jesserit has a what they call a missionaria protectiva, which is basically they've <laughs> because they've they've been sort of uh ex- they've existed for centuries, they've been spreading and planting seeds for the prophecies of what their long-term plan was. The Fremen have have lots of sort of myths about when the Bene Gesserit comes and things like that. I think we discover more about that as we go along, which it also serves Paul um, as he interacts with people. Um, but that's that's how far seeing the uh, Bene Gesserit have been. They've they've basically said, well, let's just tell everyone everywhere that there will have mysteries of what we intend to do with sort of prophetically speaking. And then when when it happens, that'll that'll sort of a uh, ease the uh, the transitions and the final thing that happens is jessica realizes that the shout out mapes has a uh, has a knife on her and it is a what's called a chris knife which is apparently carved from a sandworm tooth which is quite a thing because sandworms are uh we learned earlier are massive and would have to be very difficult to uh to harvest they're also the main they are the main issue with the the wealth on Arrakis. Uh, I don't even know if we've talked about the wealth on Arrakis yet, but it's the spice, um, which is a byproduct of the the sandworms. But however, 
because it's a byproduct, it exists in the desert and it has to be harvested, which draws the sandworms. So um, that's the great danger, um, the wealth and the danger on Arrakis. Isn't it just sandworm poop? Yes, I believe that's exactly what it is. <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're very protective of their poop. <laughs> Byproduct. Mm, yes. <laughs> Oopsie poopsie, and there's the spice. Uh, so, so they, uh, so there's this. She has this knife. There's lots of um, customs and and reverence uh, about the knife, which are presumably somewhat rare, especially for non Fremen. Um, but she gives the knife to uh, Jessica, and Jessica is able to use her training to to sort of fulfill the 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 appropriate um, steps of the customs to uh, get the shout out mapes on her side. Any uh, any thoughts on uh, on this uh, this section before we move on? I thought it was uh, it was a pretty interesting little scene. Um, it was it was very tense, but the the confusing part was like the the different customs of the Fremen with regard to their Chris knife, mm-hmm. how that played out. You know, because I think Lady Jessica kind of thought that Mapes was trying trying to assassinate her, trying to kill her with the knife. Or maybe not. Maybe she was just kind of like, well, you got a knife and you're not supposed to. So what's going on with that? And then Mapes shows it off or, you know, brings it out. And and it's kind of like, well, I wasn't actually trying to do anything to you, but here now you have it. It just, I really liked the, the, the scene, you know, or the, the confrontation, the confrontation. I just, it was kind of hard to understand exactly what was going on with with re- regard to how how they how they were how she was passing it off and what what her true what mapes true intentions were and stuff like that so did, did you guys get that sense or was i just like kind of spacing on this part i i agree with you i i think that there was a lot of confusion on customs and there was a little bit of feeling each other out i thought it was done well enough yeah i like this section it's it's sort of um Yeah, there's there's a tension and it's Jessica feeling her way through it and kind of figuring out how best to handle it. And then she does does well enough and she passes sort of an unknown test that she wasn't expecting. Do you have anything, Dave, or you want to? It was just it was just a more of a character development for Jessica and Mm -hmm. how astute she was on customs and how she could handle herself. You know, even though she was in potentially in peril, she uh, she knew the right thing to do in the situation. Yep, I, I think a lot of the, the the benefit of all this this lack of action and talk, but like the constant talking and interacting, is that you really get a sense for the characters and you really get a sense for the world. So I think it's one of the the benefits of the style. I think it would frustrate some readers as being too slow or not very interesting, but I, I personally like that. It also adds to this tension that like. We don't know who we can trust. We know there's danger all around us and we don't know who to trust. Yeah, right. Because we don't know either. We're seeing it through Jessica's eyes. So we don't know what the shout out Mapes intends um, or or what it might mean. Great. (laughs) Okay. So um, let's move on to the next section where uh, Jessica comes to speak with Dr. Yue. Yue is, of course, the traitor. And uh, he is very worried, clearly, that Jessica is going to figure him out because of her training. As we get closer to the time that he needs to act, he uh, he has a little gambit. He calls her informally Jessica instead of using her her honorific, the Lady Jessica. 
and then appears he makes himself appear very sort of embarrassed about it and intending to basically have her chalk up any weirdness to his discomfiture in in accidentally calling you know the the lady of the house by her by her first name in a familiar way so there's a back and forth where he's we're hearing his thoughts and how he's trying to hold back but you can tell how much he hates the position he's in he's mad that he was pulled into it in the first place and then he at a certain point thinks he's he's very close to confessing but then does not and as we leave Jessica explains you know mentally thinks rather that she knows he's hiding something but she thinks it's not a big deal and it's just about him trying to be nice to her about what what lies ahead here on Arrakis and so he he she chooses not to go back and make her make him divulge the thing that that he's been hiding from her which there's a moment where things could have changed dramatically but she decides oh i think i know why you know this is a flaw this is a bad conclusion even though she figured out he was trying to hide something uh, i thought this was a really interesting uh back and forth it's interesting to know what what's going on in the thoughts of of dr ua as as they're going back and forth did you guys in, in enjoy this little back and forth i did not no. <laughs> no. I found it really distracting the constant oh my wife's training is helping me. <laughs> yeah, just between that and that three or four times they mentioned the Chris knife pressing upon Jessica's oh, whatever yeah. and it's like okay I get it she's got the knife okay. Yeah. I I understand. And I don't know if you know I don't know if you know this Matt but some of the characters have blue eyes also. <laughs> yeah it, this it seemed very redundant um because you've got the dialogue and then you've got the the inner inner monologue and it, it just ugh, it was it was a lot i i agree with matt on that i i think it could have been done better it's it's not a terrible interaction but it could have been handled a little better zach yeah. do you hate this as well no, I, I didn't hate it. I thought it, I thought it was kind of interesting how, you know, he's, he's thinking about what he has to do to try and to get her off, you know, to, uh, not is what I was going to say. Would you like to say that sentence again? He had to try and figure out what, what way to, uh, to try and, um, milk her. No, you, you get what I'm trying to say. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll say it better. Um, he he was trying to uh, figure out a way that he could he could um, say or do things that would um, move her out of the direction of thinking that that he was actually the traitor that that he is that we know him to be. Yeah, and then ultimately he lands on being telling as much truth as he can. Yeah, right? yep. that's this is the scene we're in. Yes. yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. Yeah, this uh, the that the stuff that you you uh, Dave and Matt didn't like I, that never occurred to me. Uh, I guess that could you know, that could strike one that way for sure, because that's the way it struck you. But well, and it might be the difference between listening to it and reading it. Yeah, because mm -hmm. like it could the, come off completely different reading it. You've got yeah. the voice actor doing his line and then you've got the narrator saying the thoughts and then you've got the uh, other okay. voice actor saying a line and then the narrator saying her thoughts and then mm -hmm. it yeah it 
it doesn't it didn't translate well and maybe it is better read but it, it was not particularly interesting yeah, that, could, that could be uh it, something sometimes things work better on the page than they do out loud for sure and and vice versa all right we'll move on um to the next scene where we get paul basically the the aforementioned assassination attempt by uh the harkonnens the one that's not supposed to succeed but has to look like it was meant to succeed they have hidden a what's called a hunter seeker which is like a tiny a tiny deadly like mechanical fly type thing it has to be operated remotely but reasonably close so that means that there is somebody who is a trader who's on the premises it's like Paul, a long, it's like a long needle, right? Like I think a, so. Um, it's, yeah, not like, way, it's not like a bug. It's the way they showed it in the uh, the the new Dune movie. Maybe is making me think that it's more like a bug. But I always thought of it as a, as a small flying thing, which is maybe why I call it like a like a bug or an insect. But um, it was like yeah, a I don't sliver of metal. So I thought they described it as yeah. But it has to move somehow. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly um, uh, whether it has wings or, or whether it's whether it has some other propulsion or, or how it works. But I think um, it's the force. It could be midichlorians. That's a good point. <laughs> Sometimes it's better not to explain. I think is the lesson we all learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't need to explain everything, <laughs> yeah. or or have a better explanation if you're going to do it. <laughs> um, so. He is getting up to go explore on his own. Um, in many ways, he's a very mature for a 15-year-old, but in some ways, he is acting like a like a 15-year-old, and he wants to go explore the house without, you know, having security detail with him because um, he's he's curious. He so he gets up to do that. That's when the uh, the uh, hunter seeker comes out, and if you stay still, they have trouble seeing you. So he stays still, but then the shadow Mapes, who was sent by his mother. To bring him to a meeting with his father opens the door, at which point the hunter seeker dives for her. He dives for the hunter seeker, catches it, and saves her life. They have a brief interaction, and then the shout out Mapes mentions that her mother, his mother rather, was in the weirding room, as she calls it. So uh, so Paul goes to to find his mother, basically. This was uh, one of the few action scenes we got in 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 this uh, this section of the book. I thought this was uh yeah this was interesting and you know it, it showed both Paul's training and his physical abilities. Um, what, what what do you guys think? It it was interesting. It's hard for me when when they present a situation where the character wasn't ever actually in peril. Like if anything, Mapes was the one in peril, and that she was probably the one we needed to be concerned about. And so Paul got to be the hero in that scenario. And I understand he wasn't ever, he wasn't supposed to be in peril. Uh, this was more of a plot driven scenario to, to move the Atreides to b- give them evidence that there was uh, foul play more than it was to actually put Paul at risk. So I'm not a big fan of that kind of, of that type of thing, but it was fine. Well, I read it or listened to it more as Paul was at risk, but it was kind of a, a less than strong attempt it's kind of like well we'll do this thing so they think they discovered one of our traps and right. if it works that's great but it's not our intention that it's going to work well i, I almost think that the harkonnens didn't want it to work uh, yeah. i think the baron was like well peter said it has to be a good attempt we, we can't just it can't be obvious that it was so it has to be dangerous but we have to think that there's a decent chance that that he will survive it um right. 
So I think there was some risk in the air because that was mentioned earlier that it it wasn't the way I took it was, oh, there is some danger because it has to be a a a wholehearted attempt. We don't think it will succeed, but what if it does? That wouldn't be great for our plan because that might lead the Duke Leto Leto Leto. Later. Uh, it might lead the Duke to uh, change his plans and uh, be able to accuse them overtly of, uh, of actually assassinating his son. And that might change the way it all works out. Yeah, so I thought I guess, there was some tension there. I guess it's more that I'm cynical that the main character is going to die in, yeah. the, in the first sixth of the book. Of course. Um, but of course, that's a problem that's, with that's why I didn't all feel, media, basically. Yeah. yeah. So... Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess that's one way to look at it. But again, then then don't don't watch movies because well, the, no, and most that's, of them, that's, you know, <laughs> that's the thing is I I do appreciate it that they turned the actual like Mapes was genuinely in danger, um, and that that may, that uh, rectified the scene for me. Okay, like the whole time where it was Paul, I was like, ah, the, I mean, we know nothing's going to happen, but then they introduced the actual peril, right. Well, we know what's going to happen, but Paul doesn't. So from his yeah. point of view, he's probably shitting his pants. Right. Um, yeah. It's because, more about how he handles it than I it mean, is. Yeah. I think it was more about showing how trained and intelligent he is. He knew how to handle the situation. Right. In the same way that Lady Jessica handled the Chris, Chris Knife situation with, right. um, with Mapes. Yep. yep. The weirding room. Jessica finds a door that she hasn't explored yet um, at the top of a spiral staircase. As she's about to go in, she sees the shout out Mapes and she sends him to wake Paul. So now we know that we're running the concurrent events from her perspective. Jessica uses her training to open the locked door. And then she finds a, a room that it's, I think they say it's a 10 by 10 or hundred square feet or something. And it's basically a, a, a small, like, uh, climate, uh, like, like a, a humid climate room inside of, of you know, the, the desert planet, which doesn't exist anywhere on the planet unless you create it, um, full of plants and humid air. She mentions that she, she thinks that the water that they spend on this could support a thousand lives on Arrakis. It's, it's a way of the wealthy to show they don't, they don't care about water. It's not important to them because they're wealthy enough to, to be able to waste it because it is a waste of water. She at that walks further in and then finds a note from the previous resident of this house. Um, this is not where the Harkonnens stayed. They chose to stay in a different city. And in this house, the uh, Margot Lady Fenring was the previous um, person who was also Benny Gesserit, we discover. And she leaves a code in the note, which appears to just be a, hey, you know, this is a place that I came to enjoy. I hope you enjoy it as well. Um, there's a code that indicates to her that there is information and she eventually figures out that there is a secret, um, code that's been placed on the plant the, there's a leaf directly over the, uh, the placard that has this note. And so she, that, that plan warns of the attack, which is ongoing at the, at that exact moment elsewhere in the residence and some more details about the Harkonnen plan, um, she doesn't know everything because apparently her husband was not actually part of House Harkonnen um, because he he was I think he's more associated with the with the emperor. Um, so she has some details, all of which we already know. But 
now Jessica has an, had another warning from another source. As she discovers this, she's about to go run to, to, to save her son. And at that moment, Paul opens the door because he came to find her. And they discuss the possibilities of who the, who the traitor could be, whether it's, I think they mentioned Yue and Hawat. Um, I don't know if they mentioned anybody else. I don't remember anyway. Then um, right before they leave, Jessica notices that there are some flashing lights in the distance, which are likely signals between Harkonnen agents, perhaps to, to convey word of what happened. Yeah. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts on, uh, on this section? I thought this whole section was pretty convoluted. The previous section and this section combined or just the section all on its own? Uh, I thought this section, after having just had the last two, the, the whole uh, Mapes traveling between all of this, it just, it was so much. And then the, oh, they must be using flashing lights because otherwise we'd be able to detect their signals. Are you telling me there's only one means of communication? And so we've got to resort to Morse code or something like that uh, with flashing lights. It just feels like creating a problem so that you can have a solution for it. Like, okay. why, why does this leaf, why, why do we need to leave a note in a leaf on a plant that the person might find eventually someday? And then it happens to be at the exact moment that the thing is happening. And now we've got the, the flashing lights and it's just, just pretty convoluted. There is an element of coincidence and chance here. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, is I it or is it the Benny Jesuit training? And uh, she knew that she would find this room and she knew that she would find the notes and figure it out. Yeah, yeah but if you actually the timing cons- is improbable. Yeah, if you had concern for the well-being of the of the people at risk, then maybe don't hide it in some random plant. Although you could argue that that's because you can't be open about things. Yeah, exactly. But yes, I would agree with you, Dave. The timing of all this is very coincidental, and it's perhaps it just makes it just serves to smooth some plot along, and is not that likely. But the other stuff makes sense to me. I mean, the flashing lights—I don't know. I never really thought about a different way that they would communicate. It is. It makes sense in that the attack just happened, so that's the moment when you might see the flashing lights out a window you're looking, but you could argue that that's entirely too coincidental as well. But I never really thought about it that way. Um, but yeah, Zach, what, what, what's your, what are your thoughts on this? Is this a, is this a step too far in coincidences? Um, I think the only thing that's kind of strange to me is uh, I don't really know that much about the uh, Lady, Lady Fenring, and why they were there before and how long like so how how long did she know about this this potential plot enough to set all this up i mean that's that's the i think that's the thing that um that i'm kind of agreeing with dave on is that is that it it's just were they were they there and then she did all these little coded messages and then they took off and then you know like a couple weeks later that's when the heart uh the um the the Atreides move in to the Arakeen palace or whatever the, this place is. It just seems like it's, it's a little too conveniently timed uh, in an odd way. Yeah. The fact that it was found at the exact moment that the attack was happening is a little stretches. I, I mean, you could find it whenever, I guess, but I, I, she, she and her husband were mentioned when the Harkonnens were talking earlier. Very briefly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's all we and know so about it. 
I, apparently I think at this point. they were the ones that were living in Arakeen, obviously. Would, yes, right? in this in this residence where where the Duke decided they would set up um rather than where the Harkonnens were living. So was was this message written on a on an actual leaf? Like I could go grab a leaf off the tree in my backyard and write the message on that. That's that's what they're talking about. It's not like a figurative leaf, like how the yeah. worm poop is spice. Yeah. Type thing. It's it's like an actual leaf. Yeah. And there oh. were like and she she did yeah, then like I little, definitely like, don't like the scene. <laughs> like, like like some sort of braille braille type bumps on the uh, on the yeah, bottom yeah. part. Yeah, part that she clearly placed something on the bottom. I don't know if it was like little dots of glue or okay. you know, bumps in the alley is bumps in the, <laughs> or bumps on the alley and they figured it out. Yeah. All right. Uh so that that is the end of of that sequence and then we move on to uh the duke's perspective um he is understandably angry that the uh, the attempt was made on his life that was something that they didn't know uh beforehand they only found out about that as jessica as it was happening when the lady jessica in the previous scene that was something that they were not prepared for specifically he uh meets with gurney halleck when he comes in um and sends gurney halleck off to to go convince some of the experienced people who are choosing to leave to stay by offering them more money and positions and things like that and this is basically more just uh to i think this section is basically the duke's angry and will that affect his decision making and then there's some nuts and bolts like okay this is what we're gonna do with these people Thuffer or Thufer or Thufer or whatever it is needs some people. Gurney, go send him, send send him some people. You know, not a whole lot happens in this section. I wanted to ask uh, Dave and Matt um, about the audiobook. So in the in the text, I believe it's it's the uh, the the Duke's thoughts where he keeps saying over and over again, "They tried to murder." Or they tried to kill my son, and I'm just curious if that came across in the same way in the um, the audiobook. It was did they do that as a repetitive, you know, narration? Are the thoughts of characters in the narrator's voice or in the character's yes. voice? So anything the characters say audibly say is there's a voice actor for a different actor for each, at least the main main parts each have their own actor and then there's the narrator who tells us the the big story this you know the scenery and all that and then also the inner thoughts as the characters are thinking them okay and then just um tangentially related there's a third or or a second narrator if you will who reads the script from the uh oh the princess erlan princess erlan and that gets a that gets some special effect treatments with some sound effects and all that stuff oh. to make it to give it this extra presence of and, uh, gravity of importance. Matt, does your version have all that as well? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you're probably listening to the same version. Yeah. It. I think. I think the production of it is very well done. Some of the voices are a little over the top, but it's like theater over the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Deliberate. and, I, and I, yeah. I like it. You know. Yeah. So I I have no complaints about that as a as a production. Matt, are you enjoying the experience and the production uh, quality? I am. I think it's really well done. I was just curious how that played out because because the the Duke s- says that in his mind like five or six times. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. he's so he's so 
pissed that they uh, yeah, stuck focused. Conan's I thought my CD this. was scratching for a minute there, but then I realized <laughs> it's on my phone. So, um, <laughs> but yeah. All right, uh, and then we we move on to our, our final section of the of this uh, this first part. I, I think of it as like the council, um, basically um, the Duke and Paul and Thafir Hawat and I think Gurney Halleck is there as well, and then a bunch of other dudes. They all get together before the meeting actually happens. Uh, Thafir Hawat tries to resign because he of his failure to catch the uh, the plot. Both um, the Duke and Paul are like, no, no, one got by you, but you know, it's because it was, it was too straightforward an attempt that you, you didn't, you know, you didn't it was, suspect it was it. too easy. We didn't think yeah. they'd do something so, so simple. Yeah. They don't, they don't want to accept it and they, they want him to stay there. And then I think the Duke says he'll, he'll work even harder now because of, you know, his frustration at, at, at failure. And then the, the meeting begins. And basically this just explains the whole, what they're facing, how much money is at stake, um, what the Duke's plans are to harness the Freemen as, as fighters, I believe. The Fremen? Yeah. Did I say Freeman? Uh-huh. That's how I said it when I was 12. Yeah. <laughs> it makes sense. It's probably yeah. derived uh, from that. Yeah. Um, but I know it's Fremen, um, but I'll, I'll probably say Freeman again someday. Uh, Fremen. <laughs> uh, the Fremen uh, will be the fighting force because they're they're known to be very fierce people, almost impossible to eradicate, even though the Harkonnens clearly tried very hard to do so. During this meeting, Duncan Idaho arrives and we meet him for the first time. He describes his sort of some of his adventures with the, the, with the Fremen and then he reveals that he has also gained a Chris knife. So they they ask they ask him to to show them because because uh, everybody's heard about these things mm-hmm. but not actually seen one and so he wants to so he brings it out and he's not fully familiar with all the Fremen culture yet because he's only really been with them for a short time and then Stilgar arrives one of the Fremen siege leaders and says do not unsheath that because they have specific customs that mean that somebody has to be bled or killed if they if they cleansed take the, cleansed if they take the the knife out of its sheath yes yeah. um mm-hmm. exactly uh so there's a there's a back and forth and now we finally met a i guess you'd call a call it a wild fremen like not a uh, not someone working in the city but uh someone of importance from out in the desert and he is a he's a very terse and straightforward individual they find a way to sort of a, have a tentative agreement when Stilgar to show his sort of approval of the current state of things because they're, they're understandably worried about the new people on the planet because the last were trying to kill them the whole time. So he seems to be thinking that the new house is is a good one. So he spits on the table, which pisses everyone off because it seems insulting. But it is, is it explained by Idaho that that is a great honor because he's giving up his water, you know, and that's such an important thing on on Arrakis. So Idaho spits on the table as well. Then Idaho is offered basically membership or a place with the Fremen. And there's a bit of a negotiation where he's still allowed to be loyal to the Duke, but also to uh, to the Fremen. Duncan Idaho agrees to this to this uh, idea. And then off he goes along with Stilgar. Paul thinks to himself, this meeting didn't end very well. It was kind of petered out. And then there's a couple of times where he thinks that some of the ideas that his father has or decisions he makes are not the wisest. And that reminds him of the Reverend Mother predicting that his father uh, has nothing in his future. 
And that wraps up as far as we got. Do you guys have any uh, thoughts on this? Uh, the sort of I think this was one of the more long drawn out um, sections that we yeah, had. There was yeah. there was no shortage of accounting in this section. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I know numbers. That's, I know that's something you know. Uh, sci-fi fans are into accounting and bookkeeping and all that stuff. So it makes <laughs> sense. But um, I think my, my big qualm with this, I, I love the, uh, the Fremen character. I thought he was great, but how did Duncan Idaho come to have a Chris knife and not understand its importance? That's what uh, doesn't make sense. Like clearly, he, uh, I don't know if it was explicitly said, but, my assumption was it was gifted to him, right? Well, uh, I thought he was there. Was, there was something to do with another character that owned that was, Chris knife. There was a messenger that was dispatched to warn them about something, and that messenger right. died. And the messenger had the knife. Yes, as and the messenger was dying, he was being Fremen attacked. Messenger? Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. And, and Duncan so, was trying to help him. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So I think that, he was allowed that to makes keep more it. Sense. Um, but, but it if, wasn't a formal formal offer with an explanation, that's for sure. I, I feel like if he was allowed to keep it, like there was an acknowledgement prior to this that he's worthy of having it, uh, then there would be some explanation of the responsibilities that go along with owning it. Here's the the manual that comes with this knife. <laughs> yeah. well, I, I see what if, you're if saying, If it's such Dave. a big deal, you would think you're saying, if a Fremen sees time, him with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see what you're saying, but at the same time, I think the Fremen, to some extent, assume that people know, um, and maybe that's that, that's a that's a flaw. But you'd think he would have warned would have warned the council that I'm about to spit on the table, which is a great honor. Instead, he just spits like this. We we are who we are, and people I think just need to know. Duncan Idaho, having already had this blade, was more of a plot device to explain further the importance of. Of mm-hmm. the Chris knife, I don't. I don't feel like that was well thought out. Yeah, it, it, maybe it is a mechanism for for world building because I do think that first and foremost, world building is what uh, Herbert is after. Yeah. Um. So yeah, maybe that's a little awkward, but it is also in character for the Fremen to not explain themselves. I would say. Yeah, we we haven't met a lot of Fremen at this point, so true, true. You very well could be right. Certainly, Stilgard is not interested in explaining himself any no. more than he has to. Uh, yeah, so we've, we've wrapped up this first section. Um, any overall thoughts that you guys want to add? Are you enjoying it so far? I'm, I'm enjoying it despite, despite my, uh, constant, uh, your con- constructive obstinate uh, criticism criticism yeah you got despite my con- old frank <laughs> despite yeah. my constant criticism i i am enjoying it yeah no it's fun yeah. to talk about the stuff that because no book's perfect and this, i would say this book as much as i i have enjoyed it over the years is not perfect um so it's good to talk about some of the things that pop out because it's different for everybody some of the stuff you mentioned reading having read it several times it never occurred to me and you're like oh that's actually a decent point it just didn't bother me in the moment when i was reading it for me the interesting parts are like the things about how they are talking about you know technologies of the past and how they don't they don't want those anymore they basically outlawed them a long time ago that was that was kind of little little details that i missed the the first time through and and i think it it does it is it does make you think about you know where where did this whole thing come from and did the you know was is it supposed to be our past or our future potentially like we talked about earlier and i think it it, it does a good job of 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 kind of like 
juxtaposing the future with the past because there's there's so much in this that that is relatable as far as you know things things that because in my mind i always i always took the the spice to be this precious resource which I, I always took to kind of be like um, equated to like oil and, you know, the oil, yeah, yeah. oil of the Middle East and the oil barons and the, and, you know, people who have control of that resource have lots of money and can do lots of other things. Um, so, yeah. And, and it's just, it's fun going through this again and, and, um, and kind of seeing some of the, the more nuance that, that he put in the writing with regard to, you know, how the, how the past was and, and how that relates to this, this very distant future, which I don't know if we said it, but, um, the, the dates that, that when they do show up are in the 10,000s of whatever that is supposed to be measured by. Yeah. Okay. Matt, so, what, yeah. Did, what did you think, Matt? Um, I really am enjoying it. I love the world building. I love uh, the little bit of political intrigue we're getting, but the the more the sense of it, it's okay to kill your enemies. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just okay. It's expected almost. Right. Um, it seems the way of the world uh, then, for, for them, yeah. And then there's the overlay of the religious tone with the Benny Jesuit. So it's it's a really really neat world to dip your toe in but i don't think i'd want to live there no yeah, not on arrakis no, no probably not yeah. <laughs> or not well, not eight thousand years go, in the future if i got to go hang out in the weird room then maybe but <laughs> <laughs> yeah but there'll be all sorts of uh, weird messages on leaves and yeah, stuff yeah, you wouldn't I, like I, that. I, yeah. <laughs> too many flashing lights probably too yeah <laughs> no, i hate the weird room <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anything else, you guys? No, I think we're good for uh, for this one. All right. Uh, tell us what you think of this first section of Dune in the comments. Uh, like and subscribe if you do that kind of thing. If you want more content like this, you can find everything we've done at 64tacos.com. And if you really liked it, go to buymeacoffee.com slash 64tacos where you can buy us a taco. Thanks for listening. I caught it on audio. 